Kia ora koutou. welcome to the Thinking Matters podcast. I'm Michelle Englehart and today I'm holding a discussion with Mark Maney. Mark is the Associate Pastor at Massey Presbyterian Church in West Auckland, my hometown, and today we'll be discussing the resurrection of Jesus. Welcome along, Mark. It's great to have you on our podcast. Yes, no, it's it's really good. Thank you, thank you for having me and uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Awesome. So what we'll do to begin is just ask, I just want to ask you basically to share about um, your, um, how you became a Christian and a bit about your family and what you do. Right. Well, I'm a, uh, a minister at Massey Presbyterian Church in West Auckland, and I also am a staff writer for the New Zealand Christian Network. Uh, and so uh, those are my two kind of hats that I wear, including this hat. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm married. I have three children. My wife uh, grew up in India as a uh, missionary kid, and uh, we've been in New Zealand uh, for 10 years. My accent, you might have noticed, is, is from Canada. I'm from a place called Edmonton, Alberta. And, uh, and so I grew up there, and then we moved 10 years ago to New Zealand. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a quick summary of, of who I am. Yeah, so how did you come to faith? What was your journey? Like, were you brought up in a Christian home, or um, where did you, right. yeah, where in your life did you make the decision to come to Christ? Yeah, well, I kind of, I kind of had a weird kind of upbringing, and I won't go too much into the uh, details of the home life. But I had an older brother, and that kind of affected a little bit of how my parents approached me and my younger sister. And uh, so I, I was in a, I would say I was in a, a Christian-friendly, quasi-Christian home, uh, but not uh, in the same way that a lot of people uh, have. Uh, but I was familiar with Christianity. Uh, but when I was younger, uh, my mom got into a car accident. Uh, all of us did, and uh, but she was the one hurt the most. And uh, it kind of changed the trajectory of our lives. And she, uh, and then a bit later, uh, right before I graduated high school, she passed away. And also at this time, I decided to join the military to be a military musician. I played trumpet and uh, I, I wanted to use the military to help pay for schooling at, at university. And so there was this quasi relationship you can have where you can go to school and the military pays for it and all that sort of stuff. And I was gonna be a musician. Now, uh, what was interesting when I was in the military is I encountered a lot of uh, French people because you know Canada well, there's a English component and there's a mm -hmm. French component uh, largely uh, situated in Quebec. and. Uh, this was interesting to me because so my mom had just passed away because of complications because of that car accident. But my mom came from a uh, kind of a, this uh, city, this colony of uh, of Métis people. And who are the Métis people? Well, when the uh, French first came to Canada, um, they largely brought men and men normally uh, like women. And where were they going to find women? Uh, well, they found them in the First Nations people of Canada. And uh, so they married and they had a lot of children with these First Nations uh, people. And but the problem was this First Nations people didn't trust these children and the Europeans hated these children, but there was a lot of children being good Roman Catholics. Uh, and so, uh, but what happened was, is all these children, all these half and half uh, children decided to go uh, and form their own colonies across Canada. And so they made all these colonies across Canada and they actually had a, a big revolution uh, to try to form their own nation. If, if you're familiar with Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh is named after a bear that's in the city of Winnipeg. And Winnipeg was the capital of this kind of Métis nation. And they had a rebellion, it was crushed. Um, and But my mom comes from one of these, she grew up in one of these uh, colonies. And so she was fluent in French and she had just passed away and I'm in the military and I'm encountering all these French people. And I'm like, you know what? I want to get in touch with my roots. So I go and I go to Quebec to learn French. And so I, I go to the University of Laval in Quebec city. And while I'm there, uh, I wasn't very, very good at French at all. And one of my professors, uh, was like, Mark, 
you're not very good at French. <laughs> so I was like, right. Uh, but she said, good news. I know someone who was just as bad, actually even worse than you. Uh, and he's now really good. I'll introduce you to him. He'll help you. And I was like, great. That sounds great. So I meet up with this guy and lo and behold, he was a missionary learning French to go to uh, a place in Africa where they spoke French. And uh, through my discussions with him, he just kind of like really opened my eyes to like, what am I doing with my life? Well, what, what is the purpose of life? What is, um, who is Jesus? Why is he important? And it was interesting because it wasn't necessarily like a flash in the pan. Oh my goodness. Uh, road to Damascus moment. <laughs> but it was more like one day I was, I was viewing the world this way. And then the next day I was viewing it with like glasses on and I was like, oh my goodness, it, everything, it makes a lot more sense now. And so, uh, and so I became a Christian and I decided I couldn't remain a Christian in Quebec. Quebec is a very kind of secular place, a very anti-religious place. And there's whole historic reasons for that. Um, and so I was like, I got to leave. And I was living the normal, what you would expect of a normal male uh, young guy away from home, university life. That was my life. And I decided, okay, I got to leave that. And I went back to my hometown. Now, I didn't become a Christian through a church, and I became a Christian through a missionary who was in Quebec. Yeah. And so I go to my hometown in Edmonton, Alberta. And I'm like, well, where do I go to church? And uh, through a weird set of circumstances, which is a whole cool story in itself, I ended up in a Chinese church. And so uh, I was in a Chinese church, and I, I stayed in the Asian church for about uh, 15 years after that. And... Uh, and it was during this time that I went to university. I was in the military doing the musician thing. I met my wife um, and I became a minister. And I eventually became a pastor in this uh, Chinese church in Victoria. And they went from uh, four pastors to, uh, from two pastors to four pastors, but they could only really afford three pastors. And I was the most junior pastor. And uh, so they asked, you know, can you maybe find a, a new place? And I, uh, so I applied to every English speaking position in a Chinese church on planet earth. And the, uh, first church that, uh, uh, replied to me was Auckland Chinese Presbyterian. And so I took that role and that's how I ended up in New Zealand 10 years ago. And, um, and then, uh, to get ordained in the Presbyterian church, I had to go to Mount Manganui where I met you. And, and, uh, and so I was there for a while to get ordained. And then we moved back to Auckland where I'm now at, at Massey Presbyterian. And I am at, uh, with the New Zealand Christian network. Now, when it comes to this topic of the resurrection, why I'm interested in it, uh, I lived in a very unique location in Canada. It's a location that has a, a real hodgepodge of really big religious movements. So um, Mormons are really big in my hometown. We have a temple. Uh, my first, uh, my landlords were Mormon. My best friend growing up was a Mormon. My first girlfriend was a Mormon. My first employers were Mormons and my grad date was a Mormon. Uh, and so I, you know, a lot of interaction with Mormons. And so when I came back and I was a Christian, um, and I really started caring about this stuff and like, you know, trying to present the, the Christian gospel, the Mormons just were like, well, what about this? And what about that? And so I was like, oh my goodness. And then I went and started doing theology in university and it brings up all sorts of questions <laughs> like, oh my goodness, well, well, what do I, what do I do with this? And then also Canada is a very secular nation and right, you know, and you get a lot of atheists and agnostics and people who are vitriol against Christianity. And so I was like, oh my goodness, how do I respond to those people? <laughs> and then Edmonton is the location of the first mosque in Canada. And so there's a big Muslim uh, contingent. So you're interacting with them and uh and interesting right now is uh, there's a lot of ukrainians in in alberta because the prairies of alberta are very similar to the steppes in the ukraine 
And so uh, we have a lot of Ukrainian Orthodox and you see Ukrainian Orthodox churches everywhere, littering the landscape of, of Alberta. And so it's like, well, and then of course the Roman Catholics with the French. And so you, you start getting like, well, which, which denomination is true? Should I be Orthodox or Catholic? <laughs> and so all these questions are bombarding me. And I'm like, yes. what do I believe and why? <laughs> and so, um, and so I started to get really into apologetics and, and really trying to fine tune. Well, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Can I defend it? That sort of stuff. And so that has informed my ministry over the years and my time at the New Zealand Christian network. And, uh, yeah, I have three kids. And one was born here, the other two uh, very young in Canada, but they've all grown up here. Mm. And yeah, I think that's my life in a quick, well, semi-quick uh, nutshell. There's a lot in there. Yes. <laughs> there's there's yes. like a whole podcast in itself, I think, on your testimony, mm. really. How amazing yeah. to see what God has done and how it, where he's brought you. And obviously yeah. that whole pressure point of all those different worldviews have really helped you hone in on on um, yeah what Christianity really is all about, which is why we're here today, this, mm. you know, um, doing a podcast on the resurrection, um, because we celebrate Easter every year across the globe in all sorts of cultures, and that's one of the things about Christianity is it is so global. It's not about one particular country, one particular ethnicity. Um, yet I wonder sometimes, particularly in the West, particularly here in New Zealand, where the cultures become so secularized, if the majority of people who celebrate Easter now actually know what they're celebrating, actually know the full story of the resurrection. Mm. Could you share that story with us? Yeah, well, uh, two things. First, the resurrection story is, you know, the account of Jesus Christ rising from the dead after being crucified on the cross and buried in uh, a tomb. And it's the cornerstone of all Christian doctrine and theology. And it's the foundation of the Christian hope in eternal life, uh, in particular, resurrected eternal life. Mm -hmm. And by rising from the dead, not only did Jesus fulfill his own promise to do so and solidify the pledge he made to his followers that they too would be raised from the dead to experience eternal eternal life. Jesus rising from the dead is God's way of, you know, vindicating the claims and teachings of Jesus, including his claims to divinity. Now, as for the second thing, as for the actual story, uh, the, the core story that you find in all four gospels, sometimes the incidental details are different, but sort of the core uh, story that you get in the gospels of the resurrection and in the New Testament is that um, is that the gospels all agree that, you know, J Jesus of, of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, that Christ just means Messiah, anointed one, uh, was crucified in Jerusalem by Roman authorities during the Jewish Passover feast, and uh, which they celebrated every year to celebrate their uh, exodus out of, out of Egypt. And and having been arrested and convicted on charges of blasphemy by the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the Jewish Sanhedrin was kind of the kind of the Jewish local government that was uh, oversaw by the Roman government, and so the, um, he was charged uh, with charges of blasphemy by that Jewish Sanhedrin, and and then he was slandered before the Roman governor uh, Pontius Pilate on charges of treason, uh, and he died within several hours and was buried uh, Friday afternoon by a uh, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, a, a member of the. Uh, Jewish Sanhedrin, and he was buried, uh, Jesus was buried in a tomb, which was sealed with a stone. And uh, certain Roman followers of Jesus, including Mary Magdalene, a very famous name in Christianity, um, and who is always named in the Gospels, uh, having observed Jesus's interment, visited his tomb early Sunday morning, only to find it, plot twist, empty. <laughs> And thereafter, Jesus appeared alive from the dead to his disciples, including Peter, who was kind of one of the head disciples. And those uh, disciples who then became apostles then became proclaimers of the message of Jesus's 
resurrection. And so that's kind of the, the, the importance of the story and the story itself. Yeah. Now that brings us to really what we're going to be talking about, which is, you know, this event happened thousands of years ago, a couple of thousand years ago, yet it's still celebrated after all this time by Christians of all denominations. But yet over the years, atheists and skeptics have really tried to um, break it down and to just basically debunk the whole thing have come up with some really interesting theories which we will talk about today mm. one of those theories is the idea that the resurrection mimics the myths the dying what is it called the dying and rising god myths that are out yes. there what are your thoughts on that yeah so there's this so there's the claim is that there's this trope in history of these dying and rising god uh religions and and, and cults and and mystery movements and things like this and and what people do is they say, well, look, there was all this, there's this all these examples of this, and Christianity is just one more of these, and it's just copying those to try to make a quick buck or something like that. And uh, there's a couple issues uh, with this. Uh, first is the um, the idea. One is the trope isn't as tropey as as people like to say. I mean, there is this idea because of spring. You know, uh, you know, there's winter, everything dies, and spring, everything comes to life, and so you do see this kind of idea and worldview uh, in, in other mythologies and stuff like that. But when you actually uh, compare it directly with the Christian story, you'll find that in a lot of these uh, religious groups that uh, this trope apparently appears in, that they don't actually parallel at all. You know, they're, they're very, very different. And the ideas, of, they're not even talking about resurrection, and they often have different ideas of what it means to come back to life and what it means to die, and, 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 and everything's kind of twisted. And then the, the religions where you do see where the trope seems quite parallel is they come after Christianity. And so they're trying to copy Christianity because they see Christianity is, you know, being maybe successful in what it's doing. And so they're trying to copy that. And so what you get is, you know, I think the official term is like parallelomania, where people are trying to find parallels where they aren't really there. You know, they're just trying to they're trying to read into things that aren't there. It's like just because, you know, some lady you know gives me a quick hi or something all of a sudden i think she's madly in love with me and, and is going to be my wife forever like like i'm just reading too much into that mm. like maybe it means that but it probably doesn't right so especially if you dig deeper you know she's yeah. actually waving at tom behind me with, uh, <laughs> you know right so um yeah so so that's that's one of the issues then when it comes to the actual like events of easter uh sometimes what you'll have is uh, in particular you'll have and you'll see memes of this um where people will in particular, talk about like a, a god named Ishtar, mm -hmm. uh, and also, uh, and that's kind of like an ancient sort of uh, uh, Assyrian sort of god, uh, Babylonian god, and then also, uh, and I, I can't say this properly, uh, it, it, it's spelled E-O-S-T-R-E. -E. It, it sounds Easter, but throw a thick German accent on it, and that's probably how it uh, sounds. And and there's this idea that, that well, Christianity got Easter just from these things, because because they, you know, they sound the same and, mm -hmm. and Ishtar apparently was a dying and rising God and all this. Well, one problem it, that's really annoying is it's, a, it's an annoying coincidence of the English language um, that, that, that this parallel exists because virtually everyone else in the world calls Easter of some derivative of the Hebrew word for Passover, which is Pesach, the Pesach, mm -hmm. uh, something along those lines. Uh, hence, you'll often hear in, in other languages like French and many other languages, Easter will be called uh, Paschal, right? The, the, you know, this is the, if you, in a high church liturgical setting, it'll be called like, you know, the Pas Paschal lamb, Paschal this, Paschal that. And so it's only in English that Easter is even the name. In every other 
language group, it's something else. And so you wouldn't even begin to think of these parallels. Um, and, a, and a good article that kind of refutes the idea that Easter's copied from Ishtar and uh, this German idea of Easter is uh, by an atheist guy, actually. Uh, he has a blog called History for Atheists. And he, he, he himself is quite a strong atheist, and he makes some arguments for that in, in his blog as well. But he, he really gets frustrated at the really sloppy history of, that some atheists will use and their uncritical acceptance of you know memes and stuff yeah. and so and he's a really good historian himself and so he has a good blog article uh, his name's tim o'neill and i think he's from australia and you can uh, if you just search on google you know uh easter ishtar uh easter e-o-s-t-r-e and eggs uh and history for atheists by tim o'neill he'll, he'll give you a good article on just where where how did this all happen and why do people think uh, you know, Easter was copied from uh, myths. But the coolest, the funniest thing, not coolest, but the funniest <laughs> thing about this whole thing, about how uh, especially atheists love and love at Easter time to share these memes about, oh, look, Christianity just copied, uh, you know, these pagan myths. Mm. What's really funny is that because because if, if Christianity didn't copy those, well, where did the idea come from? Like, who, who thought up of this idea that, that Christianity copied pagan myths? It actually comes from a fundamentalist Christian named Alexander Hislop, uh, who lived in the 19th century, in the 1800s. And he was, a, he was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland, and he just really hated Catholicism. And he thought, you know, Catholicism was the great, you know, Satan and blah, blah, blah. And he just had this really uh, anger towards it. And so he uh, wrote a book um, called The Two Babylons, The Papal Worship Proved to Be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife. And he wrote that in 1858. And in that book, he just makes a lot of this stuff up. And he actually, he, he actually, all the, the stuff that the memes are based on, you can find it in this book. And so in the great irony of history is you have skeptics who think they're being all rational, uh, sharing these memes uncritically about that Easter is copied from pagan myths, when in reality, they're uncritically just accepting claims from a fundamentalist Christian who hated Catholics, right? So it's it's kind of, um, yeah, it, it's Ironic. pretty funny. And, <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, so if you want more, read that article. Uh, there's lots of stuff written on this, but basically Christianity uh, is, is an Easter is based on the Easter story and has nothing to do with copying pagan myths. And yes. if anything, pagan myths have copied Christianity. Yeah. And then there's the idea of the fact that, you know, Jewish, the, the, the first church, the, the first um, Christians came from being actual, you know, profoundly Jewish. And so their whole concept of using a pagan god would have been totally frowned upon. That's not something they would ever do. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the Jews now and Jews back then had an extreme uh aversion mm. to mixing the divine with the physical, right? I mean, and you see this with Muslims as well today, where the idea of associating Christ with the divine uh, is, is just absolutely blasphemous. Mm. And so the idea that Jews would want to associate uh, pagan gods with, uh, with humanity uh, is really uh, stretching credulity, right? Yes. I, mean, you, you, I mean, you had Hellenized Jews, like Greek-influenced Jews who mm -hmm. wanted to live with the culture, with the Roman culture. Uh, but the Jews who are proclaiming this aren't those types of Jews, no. right? These are really solid, uh, grounded Jewish Jews, right? Yes. So, uh, and they're not, you know, as associating the divine with, with humanity and claiming resurrection and a bunch of other beliefs as we'll get into probably in a bit, mm. is just not, uh, it's just not something you would expect if you're going to make that excuse me argument you're going to have to justify it mm. and 
uh, the justifications given are really poor and often, again, based on, you know, a fundamentalist Christian's musings. Yes, um, yeah. So, so it's, um, yeah, it's just not, because quite often, it's largely we, not credible. Yeah, because quite yeah. often, you know, I think a lot of these people look at things from the 21st century eyes as well. Yes. They don't really look at who the first Christians really were and what their belief system was going into Christianity and how profound that was and the influence that it had on it. Yeah. So that brings yeah, us yeah. to, yeah. Did you want to say no, more? Well, well, yeah, just, just the final thing is just, well, yeah, we are, we're in a post-Christian world. And so mm. people will see that people are, you know, uh, you know, you'll see these themes after Christianity. But the, the point is, is that those things are influenced by Christianity. It's not Christianity was influenced by them, right? Yes. So it's, um, uh, yeah, who's copying who? <laughs> In my argument is that especially any document you find that's written after Christianity, odds are it's, it's copying Christianity, mm. not Christianity copying it. <laughs> okay, so there's one question that needs to be addressed, and that is why the cross? Why did the Romans use that particular um, executional tool? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we, we live in kind of a, or we, up until recently, we lived in kind of kind of a guilt-based, um, you know, society where where you know whether I, I did something right or wrong is based on whether I'm personally guilty, and 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 it has to do with like actual, um, it, it's just it's it's it, you know it has to do with like did I do this? But mm. but the back then it was more of an honor shame society, right? So so and, and it's kind of similar to where I think we're going as a society now. I feel like yes. we're especially with cancel culture type stuff, we're moving to a more honor shame society where just associating with people who are viewed as morally poor uh, will bring you down and everyone around you, right? So now it's not just, uh, you know, oh, you can't talk to that person because he's wrong. You can't talk to anyone else who associates that with a person mm -hmm. because then you're like, you're giving too much justification. It's this honor shame idea. And so shame is, is powerful in many different cultures and it was powerful back then. Well, one of the ways in antiquity to really hurt uh, people was you, you wanted to find ways to really shame them and perhaps there was no more shameful act that one could do than to crucify them right so um and now most of the time uh, those who were crucified were were men and most of the time they were crucified naked which already is quite shameful imagine if you were you know displayed naked right it just in front of everyone to see uh you know it, it's a shameful thing and there's now there are possibly you know a couple of accounts of women being crucified but that was so unbelievably shameful that it just wasn't done right right mm -hmm. this is this is the at the pinnacle of shame and one of the examples of just how shameful uh, a community especially back then saw crucifixion comes from a story uh, from josephus who's a first century historian he was a, a jewish man who who fought in the jewish war against the romans uh, but then he kind of turned coat and be, uh, joined the romans and uh and because of that he life was kind to him and he was able to write several histories about that time period which is really useful uh, for us today mm -hmm. and he relates this story uh where there was a jewish fortress called uh Machaeus. Uh, i'm not sure i'm saying it right um and and, and, and it along with the town uh, was surrounded by the romans and they weren't going to give up this town wasn't going to give up and every day uh, some of the jewish you know young men would come out of the fort and kind of taunt the soldiers and wreck the siege works that the roman soldiers were building 
and well, one day, uh, one of the leading Jewish young men, a guy named uh, Eleazar, <laughs> um, didn't make it back into the fort before he was apprehended by the Romans. And the Romans decided they were going to crucify him in front of the fort. And the fort, rather than have that man, that young man from a leading family in the town, so a prestigious family in the town, rather than have him crucified and so shamed and bringing shame on that family, the fort gave itself up, right? It surrendered to the Romans, allowing them to take the fort and town. I mean, that is how shameful the crucifixion was viewed in the ancient world. Like, like it brought a lot of shame on, on people, so much so that a town, because of its, you know, the, the, the important family, was willing to just give itself up, which was out of character for Jews, especially at this time. Mm -hmm. And so then a question has to be asked is, so for the disciples then, three days later, uh, they start proclaiming Jesus' resurrection and that he was their Lord and Savior. Um, why were they doing this when everyone knew that Jesus had been crucified? You know, it's an incredibly interesting question. What could possibly make them ignore the shame of following such a leader? Uh, and so the cross was an extremely shameful thing that brought immense shame. And yet here you have the disciples shortly after that proclaiming not only uh, is he resurrected from the dead, but that he's their Lord and Savior, and they want to desperately be associated with him. Hmm. It, it's quite it's quite interesting. And it's, it's a historical question that leads to the question of why. Yeah. So that would explain why the disciples just basically disappeared when he was being crucified. 100%. Because, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, once he's once he's on that cross, it's like, well, we don't want to want to be here because yeah. uh, we don't want that shame attached to us. I mean, that's why Peter, you know, denies mm. him. Uh, I mean, he hasn't been crucified yet when Peter denies him. But but he's I mean, it's like there. you don't want to be associated. And if you read the scriptures, uh, there, there's a passage in, I believe it's Deuteronomy, where, you know, being hung on a tree was considered, you know, you're cursed by God, basically. And, and, and commentators at this time interpret crucifixion as, as this verse applied to that as well, because, you know, a cross is built out of, you know, a tree. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it just was bad. Yeah. It was a bad so, stigma. So it was basically saying there's no way he could be the Messiah that they all thought 100%. he was. They no, just basically, no, yeah, took that away in yes. their minds. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. So there's many people out there that believe that Jesus was, obviously he was put on the cross, but he didn't actually die. He just, mm. they call it the swoon theory. He just fainted or passed out. But then later on, when after he was buried, he came back alive again. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, it just seems, uh, you know, it, it just seems really incredibly unlikely, right? Because because not only before crucifixion, not only before you're crucified, um, you're also flogged, right? Mm. You know, you, you you get whipped, you get, you know, it, it's you know, Jesus had a crown of thorns put on him. He was beat in the face, you know, while they, he was blindfolded, so he couldn't, you know, go with the punches, right? Like the the idea that uh, he he survived this uh, just seems uh, really incredible, right? You know, it, mm. a good movie that that shows this is Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. They might take it to a little too extreme. But the point is, is like, this was a really brutal thing. And um, there's actually an uh, article in a secular publication, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association uh, in particular. And it, it had a, it, it did a, uh, did a research uh, project on this question. And, and it's entitled On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. And so a team of doctors, you know, examined both Christian and non-Christian sources regarding the crucifixion of Jesus 
in order to you know put together a, a historically accurate account of the physical death of the one called Jesus Christ. And so I'm just quoting them now. They say clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, and heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. And then, of course, you also have Josephus, who uh, talks about he had when he was on the Roman side, he had he noticed that three friends were being crucified and he asked the Romans to take them down. They hadn't been up for that long. And, and they uh, I believe and they they take him down and they give him immediate medical care and two out of the three still die. Mm. Right. So like like the swoon theory kind of requires you to think, you know, Jesus is flogged. He has he has he's been whipped. There's lines all over his back. Skin is gouged out. He has you know, scratches all over his head because the, the the crown of thorns he's been beat he's put on the cross he has a spear through his heart he has it through his lungs all this sort of stuff he's then tossed into a tomb uh, for three days for all those infections you know they didn't have antibiotics he didn't have that in the tomb right you know starts festering right he somehow gains superhuman strength he moves the the rock himself he gets out he goes find the disciples and you know his eyes hanging out and he's like i'm resurrected right like they're not going to think that they're going to think you survived the crucifixion you know as unlikely as that is if he did survive i mean he would not look like he had been resurrected which you know has a specific meaning it means being raised bodily to immortality right if he was all like half dead looking mm -hmm. they're not going to think they're not going to think resurrection they're going to think he just survived a crucifixion yeah. but that's not what they say uh and that's not going to overcome the shame factor right no, um of true. the cross is just him being crucified and surviving right mm. so so nowadays no one really claims a swoon theory too much the only people who really do are muslims and that's because they have an overriding theological reason because in the quran there's a passage uh that says you know that jesus didn't actually die on the cross and, and that has more to do with that in islam the idea that a prophet of god would die on a cross is is kind of blasphemous that mm. that you know god would never let his prophet die in such a way and so the the traditional Muslim idea is that either Simon of Cyrene or maybe Judas was made to look like Jesus and he was put on uh, the cross. Uh, but if they didn't have that theological reason, uh, there'd be no reason to think Jesus swooned on the cross. There's actually no historical reason to think that. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's not really a popular theory, but you know, it, it ebbs and flows in, in, in its popularity it in history. <laughs> yeah. It pops up, everything pops up on the internet yeah. though, doesn't it? Yes, yes, 100%, <laughs> yeah. So fast forwarding to his death, um, a guy called Joseph of Arimathea then goes mm -hmm. to the um, goes and finds out if he can actually bury Jesus. Um, what is the significance of Joseph? Who was he? Yeah, so uh, the Gospel of Matthew describes him simply as you know a rich man and a, a disciple of Jesus. But uh, according to Mark, uh, he Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council. Uh, of the you know the Sanhedrin we were talking about so you know you had Rome who was in charge and then you had the, the Herods who kind of split rule and then you had the Sanhedrin which was kind of like the theological government and they and they kind of dealt with all the local uh, issues of of Judaism uh, at that time second temple Judaism and and they were sort of in charge there and Joseph of Arimathea was a rich member and respected member of that council uh and um 
he wasn't really big on on the Sanhedrin condemning Jesus. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to John, upon hearing of Jesus's death, uh, this uh, him and, and another disciple of Jesus asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate, uh, the Roman governor, gave him permission. And so uh, Joseph immediately purchased a, a linen shroud and proceeded to Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. It kind of looks like a skull. It's where Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and so he went and he took the body down of Jesus from the cross. And then, uh, according to John, him and Nicodemus took the body, bound it in linen clothes uh, with spices that Nicodemus had, had bought. And so what is his significance? Well, uh, you know, it, he's significant because he's the one who, you know, probably buried Jesus, which would help explain why was Je Jesus buried in a tomb to begin with. Um, it's highly unlikely that early Christians would invent a story about Joseph of Arimathea, uh, especially because he was a practicing, famous, popular member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and so you can't really just, you know, I couldn't say, hey, Jacinda is my best friend, and <laughs> blah, 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 because everyone would be like, dude, you don't, you don't know Jacinda at all. <laughs> um, you can't, and, and, and she doesn't know you. Uh, she's, she said publicly, I don't know who this Mark guy is, right? So yeah. like, like it just, you know, odds are you wouldn't make that up unless Joseph of Arimathea was was viewed as as legitimately the guy who buried jesus um also what's interesting is incidental details like he was a rich man mm -hmm. kind of matches up with the fact that jesus was buried in a bench tomb right so jesus is of course buried on kind of a bench in in, in a nice tomb with with a with a, a stone that can block it um and only rich people would have tombs like that other people would get uh, buried in other ways and so and so jesus's burial place is in, is completely consistent with the person who they believe buried him and then also it kind of fulfills a prof prophecy from isaiah 53 in particular isaiah 53 9 where it says uh he was assigned a grave with the wicked and that's kind of like with the two robbers and then with the rich in his death right and so the idea is that he's being buried in in a, in a, in a place of the rich Right. And though he even though he was, you know, killed with with uh, with the wicked. And so even though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Right. And so so Isaiah kind of prophesies that something like this would happen. And so that's um, so Joseph of Arimathea is actually a really cool uh, way of, of kind of confirming uh, various aspects of the resurrection story. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty hard to dispel someone as well known as that and have that yes. story out there. And it's I say it's the same. I think William Lane Craig says how you know the fact that that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem and that is where Christianity started. So that kind of adds weight to the resurrection story because it all happened in that same city. It's um it's quite credible. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So then going to the empty tomb. We move to early Sunday morning and we see a group of people going to the tomb and then finding it empty. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's that's an absolutely incredible statement right there. Um, yes. For, to have happened. How early in Christian tradition was the idea of the empty tomb? Was it something that was added on later on or was it right from the get-go? Right, well, what, what's interesting about the empty tomb is that the earliest Jewish polemic against the resurrection presupposes the empty tomb, right? And, and this, this is huge, right? So the early debates that the Jews were pushing back against when, uh, and, and probably the Romans too, uh, was uh, didn't focus on identifying whether or not the corpse belonged to Jesus or something like that, but rather it focused on the fact that, excuse me, the tomb was empty, 
right? So the Jewish authority did not deny that the tomb was empty. Rather, they charged that the disciples stole the body. So Matthew 28, uh, 12 to 15, you know, says, uh, and, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And then they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Yeah. <laughs> so this verse is important because it eliminates the argument of, you know, they went to the wrong tomb, right? Because if the Jewish authorities were bribing the guards, then they not only knew where the correct tomb was, but they knew it was empty, right? Even the Jews, even though they're the enemies of G Jesus, you know, they acknowledge the empty tomb. And, you know, it's like that famous saying, right, where if your mother says you're an honest person, you know, we may believe her. But if your enemy says you're an honest person, we are much more likely to believe him because no, you know, potential bias exists, right? There's a, a negative bias. And yet here you have uh, the Jews and, and other enemies saying, well, the body was stolen. And that only is possible if the tomb was actually empty. Yeah. And one other theory is the twin theory. Do you want to explain a little bit about that one? Well, that yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, but um, before the twin theory, uh, you know, you know, someone might be thinking, oh, well, the tomb's empty and well, OK, well, maybe the disciples didn't steal mm. it, but maybe maybe some robbers stole it. Right. No, you know, true. like, yeah. Right. So so why not? You know, maybe it wasn't a grand conspiracy, maybe just some 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 other random people stole it. And, and then all this was based on a mistake or something. Well. One point to make is that for that argument to have any force, you have to accept that the tomb was empty, right? You, so you, you have to admit that Jesus's body went missing. So, so if you're if that's the argument you're making, that grave robbers stole it, you're already admitting a whole bunch of the story, mm. right? That it, the tomb was empty, right? So realize that. Good point. Um, right? Which means you then need an explanation, you know, like I said, of, of why it went missing, which means you need to explain um, why... Uh, the disciples stole the body, what their motivation was and whether their motivation was consistent with the character, with their character after they stole the body. But, you know, what if you think, like I was saying, you know, grave robbers stole the mm -hmm. body? Well, um, you know, if you're, if you're robbing a tomb um, uh, and you're robbing it for valuables, uh, you know, I mean, that's one thing, but, but taking the body with you is something else. Like, why would you take the body, right? If, if you're there and getting, you want the spices, you want maybe some treasures that were buried with the person, uh, you wouldn't take the body. I mean, had, if you're trying to get in and out quickly, carrying a dead body is, is not big on that. Um, so, so why do that? But maybe, maybe you're thinking is that, well, maybe the robbers weren't there for valuables. Maybe the robbers were there for the body itself. You know, you know, there's some writings back then about people trying to steal the body from, you know, necromancy or other weird things you might do with a dead body. Um, but uh, the examples that are often used to, to say that, to say that that was going on back then, come from elsewhere in the Roman Empire and are non-Jewish and non-contemporary. And so they're not really relevant to this particular time period at this particular pr place and thus irrelevant kind of to this story. And also remember, in the burial story, in, when the tomb is discovered empty, all the grave clothes are still there yes. and they're neatly wrapped, right? So why would someone who's stealing a body unwrap the body and then hold the dead, gross, yeah. right, you know, body, yeah. right, in their hands? Yeah. Why not leave it in the wrapping and just take it? Uh, I mean, it'd be a lot easier to explain, especially if you're caught somewhere, right? Oh, you have a wrapped dead body. Oh, I guess someone died, right? But if you have this rotting corpse, it's like, 
dude, what, what are you doing with that? <laughs> right? So, so why is there wrapped, nicely wrapped linen still in, mm. in the tomb? And so, and so the idea that, um, that someone stole it uh, just seems, just seems unlikely. Um, now when it comes to the, any any comments on that before we move to yeah, the Yeah, no, that's theory? that's good. I was always wondering why they would steal it with with guards outside. I mean, what grave right. yes. what grave robbers are going to go anywhere near where they can be caught? It, it doesn't yes. make sense at all. They'd wait till afterwards, and then you know when they've gone. So it didn't, yes, never, yeah, never yeah. made sense to me. But yes, mm. talk to us about the the twin theory because I've kind of always found that quite funny, a, a funny right, yes. kind of theory to have. Yeah, well, the, the, the twin theory is kind of uh, uh, the, the most popular proponent of this is some guy named uh, Robert Gregory uh, Cavan, and he wrote his PhD thesis on this. And his thesis basically is like the classic Sherlock Holmes um, statement of when you've eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Right. And that's basically the thrust of his argument, because what he does is, is he goes, well, God couldn't have raised Jesus from the dead. And yet all the evidence for the resurrection, it just seems so clear and there's no way to refute it. And the resurrection is the best explanation, but Jesus couldn't have resurrected. So the only possible way this could have happened is if Jesus had an unbeknownst to anyone, identical twin who had kind of like an ax to grind or just wanted to be a troll or thought maybe he could get, you know, popularity or some sort. But basically the idea is that the evidence is so good for the resurrection, but the resurrection couldn't happen because those things don't happen. So it had to be a twin, you know, it's, and, and so he uses kind of that, I mean, he uses actual like Bayesian theory and, and all sorts of like advanced philosophical thinking behind it. But basically it's in popular parlance, the Sherlock Holmes, you know, when you've eliminated all the, you know, the impossible mm -hmm. that whatever remains, however improbable must be the truth. And so he's like, look, there's no other way this could have happened and God couldn't have done it. So it had to be a twin. And um, the problem with this theory, of course, is, is that there's no evidence there was a twin. Um, there's no reason to think Jesus had a twin. Um, there's nothing in the objections of early from Romans or other sources against Christians to talk about a twin. And I mean, I guess Kevin would say, well, you know, the guy was just really good at hoaxing people. But um, why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just, it just, it just shows that actually the evidence is quite good. That it's quite reasonable and rational to accept that Jesus rose from the dead, because because otherwise you have to invent you know, identical secret twins who have evil plans. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah. Um, now he's a smart guy and, and all that. And it's not like he's being totally irrational there. But mm. but it, the point is, is he's there's so much overwhelming evidence for it. This is the direction he has to go. And so yeah. that's that's the twin theory. It's like grasping at straws, isn't it? It's like I'll find anything, yes. anything at all. But that, <laughs> but the truth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I really love about this story is the fact that the first witnesses were women. Mm. That that just really blew my mind when I really realized that the first witnesses were actually women. Why is that such a um, significant thing in this story? Yeah, well, one of the significant things that actually isn't talked about as much in, in when, when women are brought up as being the discoverers of the tomb is, mm. that, um, is that it's the women who witnessed the death and the burial and were the first ones to notice Jesus. So they were at all three major events. You would need to know for sure that, hey, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, so, um, so they're at all three major events. And so they had to be present 
uh, to make sense of what had happened. And they had to be present at the death to know he was buried. They need to know where he was buried to know there was a resurrection, right? So they didn't go to the wrong tomb. They went, they were at all three events. And so this, so they're actually quite key in that they're really good in having been at all the different places Jesus was at the end of his life. Um, so, so that's one important thing. But the other important thing that's really cool is that women, um, women weren't, you know, it's kind of a patriarchal society mm. and women weren't really viewed highly as uh, trustworthy or legitimate witnesses to important events. Uh, Josephus, that, that Jewish historian I was talking about earlier, actually talks about how uh, Jewish women aren't, you know, they're not very credible, you know, you can't really use them um, in, in um, uh, you know, it, they just, their testimony wasn't valued as much as men's testimony. And so here you have the women discovering the tomb and, and being the main witnesses, right? And so if you were going to make up this story, you probably wouldn't use witnesses that would be viewed as the least credible. Yes. And, and to top that all off, not only are they using the least credible witnesses as viewed by that culture, not by me, just, just correction here, not by <laughs> me, but by that culture, but it also embarrasses the actual leaders of the early Christian church, like Peter and, and, and James and John and these people, because they're not the ones they're, they're off being little chicken people, you know, off in a <laughs> corner, understandably, yeah. right. Given the shame and all that sort of stuff. I get that, but they're the little chicken people hiding somewhere. And here are the women going to the tomb and they discover it. So, so it's an embarrassing story for the men in a patriarchal culture. So that's bad. And then they're the ones who discover it. They're the first witnesses. So that's also embarrassing. So it shows sort of kind of the, desire of the Christians to tell the truth, um, uh, no matter where the chips may lay, because that's what happened, yes. right? The, the only motivation to create the story would be if this was the story that actually happened. Otherwise, it would if you were just making it up, uh, it'd be a really weird way to do it by embarrassing the leaders of your movement that you're trying to get everyone to join and by using witnesses viewed as uncredible. Yes. Um, and so... Yeah, it's it's a really nifty part and a nifty line of evidence for the resurrection. Absolutely. And speaking of the disciples, can you sort of explain a little bit about how they would have been feeling with Jesus having obviously died on the cross, being buried? Where would they where would the, where would their mindset be at that time? We see that they scattered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so the the, the thing with so, oh, well, whoops. <laughs> so, so the, the, the thing with this is, is the Jesus movement wasn't the only Messiah movement at that time, right? There was lots of Messiah because there was this general idea and thinking uh, uh, in, in Second Temple Judaism, which was the Judaism that existed at that time of there was a Messiah was going to come and, and the end of the world was possibly coming, or at least the world as they knew it was coming to end and the Romans were going to be kicked out and a Messiah was going to come and he was just going to, you know, kind of kick butt and take names and all that sort of stuff. And so you had these movements all before Jesus and a bunch after Jesus. And what was very consistent about all these movements is that you'd have the movement and the Romans would go, no. And then they'd take the guy, they'd kill him on a cross normally, and that would be the end of the movement. The movement would disappear. And that was universally, it was like a natural law. It was like gravity. Messiah comes, he gets killed by the Romans and or someone, and that's it. And the movement ends. All the followers disperse, are embarrassed, they go elsewhere, and you never hear of these movements again. And that has, was the case in every single movement except for one. There was the Jesus movement. Now, it, it started the same. Their leader was caught. He was crucified. He's dead. The people run away. Like, you know, they're scared. They're ashamed. They're depressed. You know, they're probably, excuse me, suicidal. We know Judas killed himself. Of course, he did other things to, to 
probably do that. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, this, this, they're just following the normal playbook. But then all of a sudden, three days later, they start proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. And not only is he risen from the dead, but he is the Lord and Savior, that he is the coming Messiah, that he is the one who has enacted the kingdom of God, right? Um, why do they do that? Why do they go against um, the natural law of how this is supposed to normally happen, right? You know, you know, skeptics will often be like, well, you know, dead people don't normally rise. And so I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And okay, but but then but then you have this weird thing where you have this mm-hmm. normal thing where a leader is killed and the movement disappears, but this one movement doesn't. And you need to explain that, you know, as it's a historical fact that Christianity started, right? I mean, even if you don't believe it's true, it exists. It had to, it came to an existence at a certain point. And you have to ask, well, why did this movement start when all the other ones failed, right? And the explanation they were giving was the reason why we believe this is because of Jesus has been risen from the dead. And so you have to have an explanation for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and one of those explanations that some people seem to have is that all of these people experienced hallucinations. Mm. What are your thoughts on those? Yeah, so um, the, the, what's, what's, the thing is, is the way the appearances are described, they don't really jive with what we know about how hallucinations work, right? So mm-hmm. the resurrected Jesus is, you know, is recorded as, you know, appearing in, in Judea and then in, and in Galilee, in town, and in the countryside, right? Indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant on a hill and by a lake to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of up to 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. You know, many of these encounters are explicitly close up encounters involving conversations, right? And 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 this is very important. Jesus is often described as being physically there and even being touched physically. I mean, that's not how hallucinations often work. You know, it's, it's fuzzy or it's whatever, or, you know, it, it's not like this tangible, tactile, physical, all over in different scenarios with different people doing different things, yet consistent. Um, that's not normally how hallucinations work. Moreover, I mean, you know, sometimes people think, oh, ancient people, they're all ignorant and stuff. No, the Jews knew about grief hallucinations, right? They knew about, you know, when people died, they often saw, could see hallucinations of their loved ones. Uh, They knew people had visions. And occasionally when people die, uh, they would never call them resurrections because resurrection has a very specific meaning, right? Resurrection is not the same thing as immortality of the soul. Resurrection is not incarnation, reincarnation, I mean. Resurrection is not resuscitation, Right? That's what happened to Lazarus, right? He was resuscitated, but only to die again. Resurrection is, is, is biblically speaking, a, a biblical view of immortality, immortality of the physical body, and something that God would, at the end of history, uh, he would raise up people and reconstitute them as persons. And here are the disciples saying that, that not only is that happening at the end of time, that's actually, it's begun now. We have a preview of this in the resurrection of Jesus, right? So the Jews had theological ways of explaining these visions and other special kinds of feelings, including exaltation, apparitions, being in Abraham's bosom, um, which was a way of referring to where righteous Jews went uh, when they died. Uh, And, you know, Jesus kind of refers to us in his parable of Lazarus, when Lazarus uh, uh, in his parable goes to heaven and the rich man goes to the other place. Um, And so, but resurrection is very different from these other Jewish words that people would use. And, And I mean, it's very similar 
you know, uh, today, right? Like if I have a friend and Bob, right. And he dies and three days later, I see him at the edge of my bed or something. Mm. Um, I'm not going to think, uh, Oh, Bob's resurrected. Yeah. I'm going to think, Oh, I had a bad cheeseburger or I'm having a bad dream or it's a hallucination of some sort. Mm. Right. And I believe in the resurrection. I mean, that's my whole reason <laughs> being a pastor, right? I proclaim the resurrection every Easter. I have a firm belief in it. And my default view will not be, Oh, Bob's been resurrected. Why? Because we know about grief hallucinations, about yes. apparitions, about visions. We know all about this. The Jews did as well. They were very familiar with death, right? And so um, they knew about these things. And yet the earliest followers don't use any of those words. They didn't use any of that vocabulary. And, and instead of uh, having, uh, but instead they use the word resurrection. And so this concept of resurrection kind of moves from a peripheral belief mm -hmm. in parts of Judaism to a central part of this new Christian movement, replacing all other views of the afterlife uh, and, and, and really focusing on, look, Jesus is the first fruits of the coming uh, end uh, resurrection. And so it's clear uh, simply from the meaning of resurrection that any Jew willing to undergo such a radical shift in their beliefs against kind of all their cognitive biases that they would mm -hmm. have, all the reasons not to be a Christian, all the, the shame of the cross, all alternative views of how things, how the Messiah should be, all this sort of stuff. So for them, for any Jew to kind of have this radical shift in beliefs against all their cognitive biases, they must have had a very compelling and determinative experience to convince them that someone had actually been raised physically, resurrected from the dead. And then even more so with a group of Jews. And so, and so you got to ask, well, what could that experience have been? What kind of experience could have created that radical shift? And then a hallucination just doesn't get you there, no. right? But a physical resurrection does. Something happened. Yes, something, something happened. definitely happened. Yeah. Yes. And, I, and also with, with hallucinations, you can't share your hallucination with someone else. It's inside no. your own brain. Yes. Yeah. So speaking about things, you know, something happening and, and causing such a radical shift in the lives of these people. Um, one of my favorites is James, the brother of Jesus, simply because throughout the Gospels, you see that he wasn't that impressed with his brother at all. He did not see him as a Messiah. Um, and yeah, they were quite disparaging to him. So can you explain a little bit more about his story? Yeah, well, so James is kind of the he's kind of a half brother of Jesus uh, or a cousin if you if you're Catholic or something. But but you know he he's he's he grows up with Jesus, and he's uh, the brother and he's not big on Jesus, right? And, and you know and it's it's the common trope. It's like what would your brother need to do to convince you that he was God, right? Like like there's nothing my brother could do. There's nothing your sibling could do uh, to convince you that they were uh, God, right? And he's he's not big on Jesus's message, and yet uh, shortly after Jesus is crucified on the cross. Right. All of a sudden you have James, not only uh, a follower of Jesus, but he's kind of heading up the church. Right. It's like all of a sudden he, he he becomes totally sold out. Right. Like, well, you got to ask, well, what caused this shift? Right. And Josephus talks about how James dies for yes. uh, being a Christian. Right. And so and so you have James dying for this belief that his brother, his this person he grew up with is is the resurrected Messiah, you know, and and. Jesus dies on the cross. You know, Jesus is like that embarrassing, you know, uncle or, or brother, right? You know, he's doing all these crazy things. And then he started this movement and now it's failed. And it's super embarrassing to the family. You brought shame to the family. How dare, you know, he's probably really frustrated. And then all of a sudden there's this change in him. Well, what, 
what and, and we we know that we know that from non-christian sources that this happened to james and so historically you have to ask well what caused that why did he do that why did he go against all his cognitive biases why did he go against his culture everything saying that no this doesn't make sense why would he do that unless something really determinative and formative happened in him uh and i think taking his word for it that jesus rose physically from the dead that he resurrected i think is the best explanation of that change because he didn't benefit from it from his conversion no. straight away. I mean, the early church, if you read the book of Acts, there's a lot of amazing miracles and things in there, but there's also a lot of trauma and you know persecution, which went along with that. So it wasn't as if when you became a Christian in those days that you suddenly had all these good things happen in your life. It was the complete opposite, wasn't it? Yes, well, I mean, this is the thing. It's, it's like, um, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you'll get... Um, you know, especially uh, maybe people on the more uh, progressive uh, end of the spectrum who will be like, you know, we need to get back to the early church and doing all the good works and, and all this. And, and, you know, and the early Christians were big on that, helping mm-hmm. widows and orphans and saving babies from infanticide, being exposed to the elements and stuff. Um, and, and that people will like the Christian message and it'll be attractive. Look, look, when you read how Romans described Christians at, at their like, you know, apparent peak performance, uh, the Romans hated Christians. They yes. called them haters of humankind. They, they, were despi- they despised them. They thought it was a horrible superstition that it came from the armpit of the empire in, in Judea. And, and Romans did not view uh, Christians very well at all. They just despised them. And, 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 and then there was different periods of time where there was extreme persecution. Famously, there's the Neroing uh, persecution where Peter and Paul probably died, where, you know, Nero was using Christians to light his garden at night, right? Just set them on fire and mm, now I got light, right? Um, it's it, it wasn't, you know, you weren't doing this to get into people's good graces, right? And then, of course, the Jewish leaders, uh, they hated uh, Christians and Jesus. They felt that he was, uh, Jesus had corrupted the faith and, and that uh, he was leading Jews astray. And so, no, there was no benefit. And of course, like I said, we know from non-Christian sources that James is killed uh, for being a leader in the Christian movement. Uh, and, you know, uh, other apostles uh, are clearly risked their lives. Uh, some, uh, and the traditions are that they all died. Of course, it's a little tougher to prove historically, mm-hmm. but they definitely risked their lives in this context of anti-Christian uh, feelings that Romans had. And it wasn't until 300 years later with uh, Constantine and the legalization of Christianity that it finally became cool yes. uh, to be a Christian, that there was actually benefits to being uh, a Christian tangibly uh, when it came to, you know, your social status or what have you. Um, there was other benefits to being Christians, but but from the Roman perspective, it was just kind of a, a silly thing. Why would you be part of that? It's actually not just silly. It's horrible. Yeah. And so there was no motivation. And yet here's James thinking convinced that his crucified, cursed by God brother is actually now the promised Messiah. And not only that, he's, he's God incarnate. Like, That's he, incredible. what caused that? What yeah. caused that change? That there's a historical fact that has to be answered. And I'm not saying the Christian answer is the only answer, but when I look at other answers given, they just don't seem plausible mm. to me. Yeah, it needs to be taken seriously, that's for sure. Yes. And then, of course, we have Paul, who has the most amazing turnaround. Could you explain a bit about his life? Yeah, so sure. So Paul was a part of this group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, you know, you see them in the Gospels all the time. They're one of the key religious uh, groups in um, Israel, at, at Palestine, Judea at that time. And, uh, you know, and they, they, they were kind of a more conservative faction that they believed in the afterlife and then the resurrection. And, and they're known for maybe putting too many rules on, onto people. 
Um, and, and Paul was a, a zealous member of this group, uh, and he felt that the Christian message was actually antithetical to what God was doing in the world at that time. And so Paul made it a point to try to stamp out the Christian faith. And there's a story about the first martyrdom of, uh, uh, of the first Christian, uh, Stephen, and Paul is described there as kind of watching the cloaks of the people killing Stephen. And so, so Paul then uh, goes uh, on the road to Damascus. And, you know, this is where we get the famous phrase, you know, you, you, a Damascus moment, right? Your road to Damascus moment where Paul's on this road. And all of a sudden, you know, Jesus appears to him and goes, you know, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And, and Paul's like, what are you talking about? And, and it's just this crazy story. And, and he then goes and he interacts with some, he goes blind for a bit and he interacts with some other Christians. And, and he's like, oh my goodness, you know, J Jesus did rise from the dead. And so he goes from being this zealous guy who wants to like just stamp out Christianity and he has a total turnaround and he's he actually ends up becoming one of the key proclaimers of the christian gospel and he goes all over you know the roman empire and, and europe to, to try to proclaim this message at a time period where most people you know lived and died within probably like you know like a four kilometer radius he's going all over the the mediterranean world uh he's getting whipped he's getting beat he's being persecuted he's being all sorts of things are happening to him and he's doing this because he's absolutely convinced now that jesus has risen resurrected from the dead and so again it's 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 you know, James isn't a one-off. Paul isn't a one-off. Uh, this was a common happening right in that very first generation of Christians. And so, yeah. and we just historically know that. And so you've got to ask, well, why? And, you know, it's, um, uh, what explanation is these people experience something, yes. right? And so, which is why I think most people nowadays, um, and you might want to ask about this is, uh, is about, um, Hallucination, you know, that's why most people think it's hallucinations mm. that they had to experience because they had to experience something. something. But the problem is, is that hallucinations just don't, I cut it, I think, in the same, in the way they, they don't, they wouldn't cause the changes in the individuals and, 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 and in their belief system in the way it would need to be. Um, and so if it's a hallucination. And so I think the bodily resurrection is actually the best explanation at the very least, if we're just being minimalist about this, at the very least makes it extremely reasonable uh, to believe. Yeah. And I think that's a testimony in itself is the fact that thousands of people came to Christ through these people's through the disciples and through Paul's testimony, because it was so fresh and so real and so convincing that they were then able to go, well, obviously with the help of the Holy Spirit to actually share that in such a way that people just, you know, knowing that they were gonna get persecuted if they changed their worldview, um, just flocked and were convinced by their testimony. It was yeah, powerful. I mean, I mean, like, like, what, like one big thing is, so Jews were really strict on the Sabbath, right? And the mm -hmm. Sabbath is on Saturday. Right. And so and this was the same thing that was done for thousands of years. Right. You know, Jews, Saturday is the Sabbath. And yet here you have the early Christians. Hey, you know what? We're going to switch that to Sunday. <laughs> right. Uh, why? Why? Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And I mean, I, I don't know you know, how much experience you have in, in, in church, per se. Right. But like like is, is it your experience that church people make big changes like that really easy? Right? No, <laughs> no, no. It's like, no, no. The carpet is staying green forever. <laughs> I'm right? sitting and in like, that chair every yes, day, yes, exactly, every Sunday. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so to change the whole day of worship from mm. Saturday to Sunday, um, why would they do that? Well, they do it because they believe that was the day Jesus bodily rose from the dead. It changes 
like like if there's anything about Jews to, to distinguish them as a people, it's their value of the Sabbath. And here you have Jews saying, actually, we're going to start meeting on what we call the Lord's Day. Right. And, and, and you start seeing and now, of course, the early Christians were meet, met Jews in synagogues on Saturdays because that's the people group that they were trying to reach initially. Mm -hmm. And so you got to meet where the people are at. But Christians regularly met on Sunday very shortly after uh, because this is the day Jesus rose from the dead. It was the Lord's Day. And that's why that's why another name for Sunday is the Lord's Day, at least in Christian parlance. Yes. Right. And so you have these Christians. What what causes that change? Right. Yeah. Uh, it's this belief in the resurrection. And why did they believe the resurrection? Well, I think it's because there was a resurrection. Yes, absolutely. I want to thank you for this conversation. It's giving it'll hopefully give a lot of people um, thoughts to think, of, you know, really think about it and actually take it mm. seriously and not just go on face value or what the media is portraying Easter as being, but actually really dig deeper and start thinking deeper into what actually happened back in that, in that time that caused so much change to these people, which is so, a testimony in itself. Um, before you go, though, there's a couple of things I'd like you to do. The first one would be to share any recommendations you have for people that want to further their study on the resurrection. Right. Well, I mean, one good book is, uh, is a book by a cold case detective called uh, J. Warner Wallace. And so uh, a cold case, case detective is someone who uh, takes up cases that have gone cold, right? Nor uh, murder cases. And so, you know, someone killed someone 20 years ago and the case went cold. And so a cold case detective comes and tries to re reignite the case. And Jay Warner Wallace is someone who's actually quite good at that job. And uh, he then took his skills and applied it to the resurrection, right? You know, a 2000 year old cold case, uh, so to speak. And he, uh, and he, uh, so he's written a book called Cold Case Christianity, and, and it outlines his way of determining whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. And he uses all these cold case detective skills to determine that. And so if you want, so it's kind of cool, because if on the one hand, you're interested in like CSI and that type of stuff, uh, you get to, you know, peel, peel, peel back the curtain a little bit and see how mm -hmm. that all works. But also you get some really cool, uh, unique ways of viewing the evidence for the resurrection. Um, another uh, good uh, author is William Lane Craig. Uh, undoubtedly, if you're searching arguments or debates about the resurrection, his name will come flashing up because he's probably the foremost defender of the Christian faith. And he wrote um, a book called The Sun Rises, which is a kind of a distillation, a popularization of his PhD thesis on uh, defending uh, the resurrection. And so that's a really good book. There's an even newer version called uh, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? That's an e even more popularized version, but The Sun Rises is the actual like taking the PhD and distilling it to a popular audience. And so that's a good way to get a, a good taste of some of the academic scholarship uh, there. Um, there's also uh, N.T. Wright. He has mm -hmm. written a book called Surprised by Hope, which is a good uh, popularization of his big, thick 800-page <laughs> tome, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And so that is a, uh, he's a good, uh, uh, author to, to really delve into sort of the, the, the worldview that existed at that time and, and trying to unpack um, why, did the, why did the earliest followers of Jesus start proclaiming a resurrection? And that's, that's really good. Uh, other names you might hear are Gary uh, Habermas and Mike Lacona. They have a popular book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And uh, that's, that's a good summary of arguments for and uh, arguments um, uh, against people who make arguments against the resurrection and um and they, they got a it, it's a good popularization of that of course all these authors have very academic books you can look to as well um to uh 
to so Mike Lacone in particular, he has a huge tome as well. And uh, Gary Habermas is about to come out with one and he has some larger books. Also, another a guy who a book that recently came out is a Singaporean uh, Christian uh, by the name of Andrew Loke and his book, Investigating the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new transdisciplinary approach. What's really cool about his book is he kind of logically uh, shows like every possible alternate explanation you could give for the resurrection. He kind of just lays it all out in a systematic form. These are all the possible, this is the, all the types of objections you could give. And these are all the people who are making these objections. And he just goes through all the scholarship, all the literature, and he goes through every alternate explanation and he provides res responses to them. And so if you just want a good idea of the lay of the land and what other people are saying, uh, and then a Christian response to those things, his is a, is a great book uh, to, to do that. And then uh, finally, I would say Lydia and Tim McGrew uh, are they're epistemologists, uh, philosophers. Uh, so epistemology is the study of how do we know what we know. And so they take their epistemological training, you know, how do we know what we know? And they apply it to the resurrection. How can we know whether the resurrection happened and what, what kind of things? And they, they use probability theory and ba Bayesian theory. And, uh, and they have uh, some articles on that and some popular, you know, stuff as well. And so they're good names uh richard swinburne as well mm -hmm. callum miller you know there's lo there's lots of places <laughs> you can go and it, and everything i've said here i mean i ripped it all off of those people <laughs> right uh, like i'm not i'm yeah. not anyone great i'm just parodying uh, there's no excuse, those people there's no excuse for us as christians really not to know any of this stuff there's so much out there 100 percent. 100 percent. yes yeah thanks mark so before you go could you please share a word of encouragement to whoever may be listening or watching this mm. podcast Right. Well, um, you know, often when I talk about, you know, evidence for the resurrection, I like to close with this poem by uh, an Australian Christian named uh, Glenn Scrivener. And, uh, and he has this uh, really great poem that I think really encapsulates why the resurrection actually matters. So I'll just, I'll just uh, recite that poem uh, right now. So, so this is what he says. He says, in the beginning, there was light and life and love. And there was a father loving his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And everything come, has come from light and life and love. And out of this has come a world that is destined to share in light and life and love. But you know that this world is not like that. And I know this world is not like that. And I look around and I see darkness and death and disconnection. Where's that come from? Well, we've turned from the light. And when you turn from the light, where else do you go but darkness? And when you turn from love, where else do you go but disconnection? And when you turn from life, where else do you go but death? So this is the kind of world we live in. But what does love do when love sees the beloved in trouble? Love says, your pit will be my pit. Your plight will be my plight. Your deaths will be my deaths. Your darkness will be my darkness. And your death will be my death. And so who is Jesus? Jesus is love come down. The son of the father comes and becomes our brother to be with us in the darkness, to take that darkness on himself on the cross, to take that disconnection on himself, even to take that death that we all deserve for turning from God. And he took that on himself on the cross, plunged it down into hell that it deserves, and he rose up again to light and life and love. And he says, you in the darkness, do you want my light? You in death, do you want my life? You in disconnection, do you want my love? And anyone who simply says yes to Jesus, we get Jesus in our life. We get his father as our father. We get his spirit as our spirit. We get his future as our future. It's for free and it's forever. And so I would say 
if Jesus rose from the dead, then that narrative in that poem is true. And if it's true, it changes everything. It changes how you live, your purpose in life, why we're here, what we need to do. It just changes everything. And I think it's a beautiful picture and it's a beautiful truth. And what makes it even at the pinnacle of beauty is that it is 100% true. Amen. That's Amen. so profound. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of those poems you need to have on repeat. Yes. Yeah, every yes. time you listen to it or read it, it just speaks more into your life. And I think mm. in the world that we're living in today, we need hope and that, that's hope personified in Jesus. Amazing. 100%, yes, yeah. yes, I agree. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us, Mark. It's been such a pleasure. Yes, it's been great. Thank you, thank you for having me. And uh, you know, uh, he is risen. Amen. Yeah. Oh, you, oh, you, oh, you, oh, you, oh, you.